You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of his word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Good morning, TFC, and welcome to worship this morning. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please open them to Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 27. Luke 9, verses 23 through 27. Today we will continue to discuss what it really means to come after Jesus. This is a part three of this message. As we have been taking one verse at a time, in this section. Today we will cover verse 25. I encourage you to go back and to listen to the two previous sermons in order to catch up. And I encourage you to uh, let the Lord speak to you through those. I encourage you also that the Lord would continue to have his, his way in this idea through this section regarding what it really means to follow him and that you would allow this to change your life. In this section, uh, in the light of this section, in the entirety of it, what we've been seeing, what we have learned so far in the book of Luke, and as we have positioned ourselves in this meta-narrative of the whole Bible, Jesus now is clearly depicting what it really means to come after him, what is required to have him, him as your treasure, his forgiveness, his eternal life, and what it will cost. Today we will see that it requires an eternal perspective. It, it, it requires an eternal perspective to come after Jesus. Deciding to follow Jesus will come from having an eternal perspective. This is what Jesus wants to tell us this morning. In other words, if you do not have an eternal perspective, if you do not value eternity more than you value right here and right now and your life here on earth, you will not follow Jesus. Jesus is telling us, if you do not value eternity more than your life here on earth, you will not follow Jesus. Today, Jesus will give us motive, the motivation for giving up our life here on earth, being willing to endure suffering for his namesake and following him. Today, Jesus will reason with us. He will say, come and reason with me. Think deeply about this. He will help us see the big picture as a father would do with a small child saying, think about the big picture here. Think about it. This is what the child is focused on. He is focused on immediacy and gaining what he or she wants with immediacy. And yet Jesus is saying, think about the big picture, again, as a father would do. Think about the big picture, the long-term goal here. My prayer for you today is that you would believe what the author's intent here is and Jesus' intent, God's intent here, which is, in your contemplation and in your consideration of coming after Jesus with your heart and with your life and in weighing whether or not you want to keep this life for your own, consider long and hard and think deep about what is most valuable in the long run, eternal life 
or a temporary earthly life. Because if you choose immediacy now, you will regret it later. But if you endure now, you will be glad later. Let's pray and then let's read our text. Today we will discuss verse 25 alone. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and I ask that you would teach us through your word that we would understand your call and that we would see it with an eternal perspective. Our decision to follow you would be in light of having an eternal perspective and value. God, I pray that you would help us to be people who see this way because if we don't, there is no way we will decide to follow you. But if we do see it this way, that makes no sense not to follow you and live for you. I pray that you would convince hearts, that you would convict hearts, and that you would call us to faith in you and following of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Read, let's read Luke chapter nine, verses 23 through 27. Read with me. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would, lose, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Today's message will have one point, which is there will be no gain in the end for the one who chooses this life over Jesus. Again, there will be no gain in the end for the one who chooses this life over Jesus. That's the point that Jesus is trying to make. From the beginning, God planned for and promised his Messiah. Through prophet, through priest, through judge, through king, God promised a more permanent and sufficient way to reconcile sinners to God. In coming to earth, Jesus proved to be the long-awaited, anointed, coming king, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. Jesus established the testimony of his Messiahship as the Christ in his birth, in his first phase of ministry. And we have seen all of this take place in the first eight chapters or so of Luke. Peter testified in chapter nine earlier. It is established, he is the Christ. From that point forward, Jesus sought to explain what it means for him to be God's Christ, which is that he must be rejected, he must suffer, he must die, and he must raise in order to save sinners and to glorify his Father. For the first time, Jesus is giving this detailed account of his task in Luke chapter 9, as we have read. And we find it in equivalent passages in Matthew, Mark, and John. And immediately after this teaching to his disciples, Jesus then tells them the cost of coming after him. What it will mean for them to follow and come with him into his suffering and into his eternity. What it requires is not far removed from what Jesus must suffer himself. Simply put, if he's going into suffering, if you follow him, you're going into suffering. He says in verse 23 of our passage, you can read it. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If you want him, you must deny yourself and your desire 
for safety more than your desire for him. You must deny that desire to have safety more than him. He must have supremacy in your life. You must die to yourself in turning from your sin and living for yourself, and you must follow him supremely in place. Regarding these verses, we've spent a considerable amount of time on the fact that this is not ultimate self-denial. And money, many might, might say, Pastor Sam, why are you on such a hobby horse to make sure we understand that this is not ultimate self-denial and that that doesn't exist? It doesn't seem like that's even a point of of this text. Why have you told us that the past few weeks? It is a point of the text. It's an important point of the text and maybe the most foundational point of it. Because he says, if anyone would come after me, if anyone is coming after him, if you're getting him, that's why you're denying yourself, to get him. And that's not ultimate self-denial because we gain what's most beneficial for us, namely Christ himself. And so he is forcing a ranking here. And you want him more than you want you. And if you don't talk like this, then you're misrepresenting Christianity. Because Christianity is not a moral religion. You're getting him. It's a relational religion. It's not a transactional religion. It's a relational religion, although we get forgiveness of sins. You're getting the treasure. He's our goal. He's your treasure. He's the object. You're getting God through Christ. That is Christianity. If you miss this, or if you do not explain it that way, you're missing what makes people Christians. Getting God through Christ. Not asceticism, not morality, not even forgiveness. Forgiveness gets us to the end goal, which is God. You're you're leaving out our glorious God that we get as the point of Christianity, if you explain it this way. We're not telling most of it or some of it. We shouldn't be only telling half of it. We must tell all of it. Simply put, we're leaving out the part about God, and that's what's glorious about Christianity. He's simply forcing a ranking. Deny yourself to get me. Follow me in place of yourself. I become superior. Everything hangs on this. Everything hangs on this. This is why it's so important to discuss over and over again. This is how born again people function because God has given us new desires, right desires by making us alive to reality. And this is the decision you make when you want to be born again. Following him requires denying yourself in order to get him. If a friend asks, what must I do to become a Christian? And you say, stop this and stop that and deny yourself. You are telling him wrongly. He must first believe that Jesus is the Christ. Have an understanding of living for himself is sin. And in believing that Jesus is the Son of God and the Christ, logically say, I want him and his ways because he is right. He is God and he is most desirable, because if you believe, you're following him, thereby asking God to forgive him of his record of sin, and then, as if there's no other way, coming after Jesus in order to be found in him. That's the essence of saving faith, and it proves that you believe in him as the Christ, when you desire him above all things. The effort to serve God that does not, in the very act of serving him, look at him as the reward of our hearts, will dishonor him as a pagan God. 
Merely denying yourself doesn't prove anything, except maybe that you want heaven, or even that there's, uh, and it's maybe not even a biblical heaven, because the point of heaven is getting God in its fullness. But it may prove that you think your good works get you there. So we must look very carefully. We must look more carefully at the text when we describe things like this, and we must look more carefully at what Jesus is actually saying. So he's told us to deny, to die, to follow, in order to get him, that's the essence of saving faith. Verse 24, then what we saw last week, he says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Again, this is not an earning. This can be read in such a way that it's an earning by us. Jesus is saying, if you save your earthly life, you will lose your eternal life. Because in saving your earthly life and not following him, it displays a lack of saving faith. It shows that you don't believe in him, your need for forgiveness, his work to accomplish it, and his supremacy. You don't believe that in saving your life here on earth. It displays a lack of belief in him, and therefore you will lose your eternal life. And the opposite, if you lose your life here on earth, he said in verse 24, you'll gain eternal life because you believe in him and you follow him. Because you're believing in him, therefore you're following him. If you really believe he's the son of God and his words hold all truth, you're not messing around. You're following everything he says. That displays a faith in his personhood and his work. If you choose to deny yourself, and take up your cross, and die, and follow, to get him and his kingdom, you will have eternal life. Because it displays that you truly believe in him, his necessary and saving work in light of your sins, and your desire to be with him for all of eternity. If you wish to avoid suffering, because remember, suffering is in view here. Uh, if you wish to avoid it more than you wish to have Jesus, you will have no eternal life. Because wanting Jesus more than wanting to avoid suffering is the essence of saving faith. We talked about how suffering is a normative thing for the Christian. Don't try to explain your suffering away. You don't need to. Allow God to use it and to grow you in it. One thing I often see from Christians when they suffer is that they often are quick to blame others and blame it on the sins of others to explain their suffering. This must be the only explanation in their mind. And of course, sometimes this is true, but sometimes, and, and a lot of times, this is pride. Oftentimes, there is something that God wants to change in us. And in times of abuse, of course, we always side with the victim. It is from the sins of another. But at other times, suffering, when we are quick to blame it on the sins of others. What pride does is it often dismisses criticism or suffering in order to protect one's identity, so it dismisses it, or pride is instantly devastated by it. Pride only dismisses or is devastated by, because pride vacillates between the two in any given circumstances when it deals with suffering. It blames it on the sins of another, and it dismisses or is devastated by the suffering that they're taking in. Humility simply receives it 
and learns from it and grows from it. Humility contemplates one's own sins and the inevitability of the, of that their sins play a, a part in because we are all sinful. And it isn't crushed, or, nor does it dismiss quickly sins, but instead internalizes it. It's not tied to their identity. They don't need a great identity. It's okay. And they know that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So they ask, and and they ask questions. God, what do you want to do in my life? And it assumes some guilt and chooses to humbly grow in the sight of of God. So suffering is used by God greatly as we discussed last week. But it also says in verse 24 and as we saw in verse 24, being willing to suffer is not only for the sanctifying work that we just discussed, but it's also it proves one's faith. Being willing to suffer proves one's faith. It proves that you are holding on to the infinite worth of God. You're allowing him to sanctify you because you want to become more more like him. And also because it displays great love for people. And so when we are willing to suffer for Christ's sake, it proves our faith. It tests our faith. It shows that our faith truly exists, verifying that it's really there. So if you're willing to lose your life, literally in this passage, in this context, or figuratively, right, as can be implied, if you believe in him as the Christ, you will absolutely endure anything to follow him, to have him, to have his forgiveness, and to be his. This is the testing of one's faith in Christ, and it's describing a faith in Christ. This is the emphasizing of God-centered faith. God is for us in Christ. God is for us in Jesus. My heart is so satisfied in all that God is for me in Christ. The power of sin and the avoidance of suffering to lure me away from the wisdom of Christ is broken. And therefore, I'm following him. Now, verse 25, Jesus keeps going. And that's where we find ourselves in today. Verse 25, for what does it profit a man? If he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself, what does it profit a man? Verse 25, read it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? What we see in this, as Jesus keeps on going, is that he is leading us to understand once again, there will be no gain in the end for the one who chooses this life over Jesus. There will be no gain in the end for the one who chooses this life over Jesus. Now again, as we look at this one more time, read it slow, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? What Jesus is doing here is he is beckoning his disciples. He is beckoning us to contemplate what he just said previously, that whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for his sake will save it. That's what verse 24, the previous verse, says. And he is having us think about that verse further. He is having us contemplate it 
again. He's asking a, a question, a rhetorical question, a, a, a question of sorts that, that is rhetorical because the implying of the answer, he's implying it while he's asking the question. The answer is implied. He chooses to make this point by asking a question. This verse is a question. And the obvious answer is, is nothing, right? The, the obvious answer is nothing. Verse 25, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? The obvious answer is it doesn't profit a man. It is, there's no profit. So, which we're going to discuss in a moment. So, now this question it primarily refers back to the first part of verse 24. It primarily refers back to the first part of, of verse 24, which says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. For whoever would save his life will lose it. This is what Jesus is primarily referring back to when we read verse 25. And so this second part of verse 24 is the positive, the one who rightly decides not to gain the whole world and instead inherits eternal life and saves his soul. That's the right road. So this question is asking us to think more deeply about the first option. Namely, if you save your life, you will lose your eternal life. And so if that's the case, what does it profit you in the end? That's what Jesus is referring here to. If you save your life here on earth, but you lose it for eternity, what does it profit you in the end? If you do that, what will your profit be in the end? If it costs you your soul to save your earthly life, what profit, what ultimate profit will it be to you to lose your eternal life? And, and so this is, this is the answer, that there's no, there is no profit to it. There is none. This is the case here that Jesus is trying to point out. There is no gain. So let's look at it more deeply. Verse 25, look at the, in the text with me. He starts again with the word for. And we have talked extensively about this conjunction or this connective word. And so now, as we read this, at the very least, it's connecting, it's connecting us with the previous verse. And really the whole train of thought throughout this entire passage. Which is why I spend so much time bringing us back up to speed. Back up to this point here in the passage. We, it, we can't describe it rightly without first bringing us through what is already said. In describing the Bible yourselves as you share your, your, the word with, with your friends to a friend or to a family member, you can't ultimately do justice to a verse like this and describe it rightly when it begins with a conjunction without describing what comes before it and what's connected to it. You just can't rightly do it. We, we must do this most of the time with anything. Put it in its context and see what has come before, what has come after, surely. But especially when verses begin with a conjunction. So if you're wondering why I continue to recap, this, uh, among many reasons, one reason includes uh, that we see this conjunction beginning. So we know, in the beginning, we know that the word for is connecting us to what was just said. And that's where we're asking, how does it connect? But other reasons include we forget easily. We need to continue to see the bigger picture. Uh, this uh, drives the passage deep when we continue to recap. If you're wondering, deep in ways that we will always remember. And there's no point 
And it is often fleshly to desire to move quickly through this. And oftentimes it's because our, by our nature, we just simply get bored uh, and just want something new because we are often dissatisfied with what is right in front of us. Isn't that our nature? And especially with the Bible, with Jesus, with anything, we have an insatiable desire that can only be filled by, by God himself as we linger long over his text. So I'm fighting against that for us, that we would spend time and, and focus and allow our hearts to be transformed by beholding his word. We want to be more like the Bereans than the Athenians. Check this out. Read this, this uh, section with me. I want you to see the, the Bereans versus the Athenians. Now, when they had passed through Amph Amphipoli Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in and was his custom, and on the on and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this is Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of devout Greeks, and not only a few of the leading uh, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find him, they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the cities and authorities, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down and have come here also. And Jason received them. And they were all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they, laid them go they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. That's the picture of the Bereans. They, they had they, were, they received the word with eagerness and they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, not a few, uh, therefore many of them believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also they came too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. So now that these these people from Thessalonica have come too. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted uh, Paul and brought him as far as Athens and after receiving a command from Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now, while Paul was in, waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within them as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others say, said, 
He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to, the, to Areopagus saying, may we know what this teaching is that you are preaching? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians, look at this in contrast to the Bereans, all of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So these idolatrous people who were unlike the Bereans who wanted to examine the scriptures and see if these things were so for themselves, these Athenians instead constantly wanted to just learn new things for their own flesh. And therefore, it is good for us. We want to notice the details of the text and allow God to do his great work in us as we marinate and we sit with particular texts and, and portions of scripture. And we want to be like the Bereans who examine these scriptures to see if they're so. So we notice what comes before because we want to examine the depths of the scriptures and not just move on for the sake of moving on. And of course, we always want to learn more from what God's word says. But we recap here in verse 25 because of the conjunction. It starts with the word for. So this is directly tied to the first portion of verse 24, as I mentioned. And he is reasoning with us now to consider the road. Consider the road from verse 24 of the man who saves his earthly life and loses his eternal life. That's the connection. He's saying, think, think. Think about the man who saves his earthly life and therefore denies or gives up his eternal life. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to save your earthly life and lose your eternal life? Jesus continues, verse 25, as we read, for what does it profit a man? Now he goes on after he connects us. He says, what does it profit a man? Jesus is asking, what will ultimately be the gain for this man? What will a man ultimately gain for his own? As he says, what does it profit a man? At the end of one's work, what work? The work to save your earthly life. What will the profit be in the end? What will be his profit? What will it be his? What will he take with him? What, that's the idea here. What will be the gain in the end? What can you take from this earthly life? There's, there's really two ideas here. What can you take from this earthly life? That's one of them, and the answer is nothing. You will gain nothing. You will have nothing. You will bring nothing with you. So what will it matter? And secondly, what will his eternity be like? What will the eternal benefit be? of saving your life here on earth and losing it for all of eternity? What will his standing in eternity be? How will it be better? What will he get? How will it be better for him? How will his eternal standing and situation look? What would be different in a better way? The answer is nothing. It won't be. What will it profit a man, a person, if? Now here's the situation as he goes on in this verse. Stay in this verse with me which is similar to verse 24. He, this man, gains the whole world. What if this man, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? Now, what does he mean here? Again, is it living life to its fullest? That could certainly be a motive or a result. But in the context here, you should know this already. It's keeping one's life, avoiding 
suffering, avoiding rejection, avoiding death for Jesus' sake in order to save one's life here on earth, in order to have the life he's always wanted. All avoidance of suffering is in view here. Uh, he is avoiding suffering. He is doing so to be spared from its sorrows. He is doing so to maintain his life. He is doing so to continue playing when it's right to retire his life. He's doing so for what he hopes to gain out of this life. He's doing so for the hope of what lies ahead here on earth. He is doing so because there are still idols he wants to pursue in the future of his life as he looks ahead to his life here on earth. He is doing so because he has a vision of what he wants his life to become and what he hopes to gain one day. He is doing so because while he is here, he still has things that are more valuable to pursue. His own freedom, his own choices, his own lifestyle. He is doing so because what he even has currently is more valuable than Jesus. His own relationship relationships, his own pleasure, his own money, his own house, his own fame, his own reputation in the community. He's got a great reputation in the community, his own career. And coming after Jesus involves suffering and losing life and being rejected and being looked down upon and denying sin and the avoidance of sinful pleasures and being an outcast and being treated as different and being rejected and following his word. And it may include in this pursuit uh, of dying to the pursuit of riches so that society looks at you as lesser because you have a lesser lifestyle than everyone or that the world equates your status with value because it does. Our world equates our status and value with with uh, uh, what we own. And so naturally, we, this man doesn't want to be looked down upon, thinking uh, the, the world's perspective is right when they would judge him for losing all, all things for Jesus' sake. And, and so here, this man, he, Jesus is not the superior one. He, he is not looking to what Jesus wants. And, and so the, the non-religious keep uh, the, the view as, as being superior. And so who is the Bible to tell us who we should be, this man does not want this life. Who, as the Bible says, we should maintain a level of sober-mindedness because we know what's at stake and we know what really matters. He doesn't want that kind of lifestyle, a lifestyle of sober-mindedness. He doesn't want to be seen as extreme for following the calling of Jesus. And, and he knows that Jesus is not a weekend thing or an intermittent thing. It's not a leisure thing. It's a war. It deals with eternities. It deals with people dying for their faith. It requires that we understand that Satan is constantly on his grind. It's a, an entire all-encompassing life of death and heaven and hell and glory and sin and false belief and false teachers and constant realities of the glories of God. And this picture in the scripture is extreme Christianity because, and again, this is normal Christianity. This is what is required. And so that's the only Christianity that's portrayed. And this man here doesn't want that. You know you must share your faith in every setting. He knows that he's never off duty if he becomes a Christian, rejoicing, giving, loving the Lord, serving neighbor, in pursuit. And therefore, this man aims to avoid all of this suffering for Christ's sake, to have 
Jesus and his kingdom and instead aims to preserve his own life and gain the world. In John, Jesus describes it this way. Look, he says, whoever loves, that's the idea here, whoever loves his life and whoever uh, will lose it and whoever hates, that's what it looks like to follow him. It looks like you are hating your life. His life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That's how recklessly and how loosely you hold on to this life, one following Jesus, that it looks like you hate your life because he becomes so superior in his mission. You're willing to even risk it all for his namesake. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Suffering. Even what we see come next. Here, check this out. In that same verse, now is my soul troubled. After Jesus tells what is required to follow him, he continues saying, now is my soul troubled. What And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. He knows that suffering is coming. Suffering is in view here in this call to follow him. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He's not avoiding it because he wants to follow the glory of God, Jesus. And he's calling his his followers to have the same mentality. So now you might say, hey, aren't we supposed to like flourish in this life? Have it abundantly? Uh, Jesus is is speaking here of only one uh, kind of thinking for Christianity. And we got to be careful here because we oftentimes keep Jesus as a safeguard. We really want the life that we want. And yet we we call ourselves Christians because we want to have that safeguard that we can get the life that we always wanted. And yet also we're, we're sure that we're good. Surely Jesus will give us his eternity because we, we've considered him and we've respected him. And really, you just want both. We just want our, our life here on earth, and then we want Jesus as the safeguard to ensure that we can have our life here on earth and have our eternities. And Jesus is, is not saying that here. He's saying, I am the main point. I have supremacy. If you choose to save your life here on earth in that way, you can't trick Jesus. He knows our hearts. Uh, you will lose your eternal life. What does it profit? A man to have that and then lose his soul. So this is, Jesus is telling us to lose our lives for his sake. And you might say again, aren't we supposed to flourish in this life and have it abundantly? Well, not in the way that the world thinks of it. There is a call to love this life and to rejoice and enjoy and display great happiness. But the difference is for the born again, all of that is God-centered happiness. All of it. All of it is God-centered happiness. If we say, well, aren't we supposed to have this life abundantly and flourish? Yes, with God-centered, God-focused, God-motivated, his name, his mission, his cause as the center of it. Look at 1 Peter 3, 10 through 12. Whoever desires to love life, wait a second. I thought we just learned that we we're not supposed to love this life. Well, here Peter says, if you, whoever desires to love this life and see good days, so this is an okay thing, I guess, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. But look at this God-centeredness. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. That's what this man truly desires. This is the good life he truly desires, is the one to have God 
as the one who is looking upon his life and being pleased with this life. If Peter's saying here, whoever desires to have a good life, meaning that the eyes of the Lord are on you and that his, his, his ears are open to your prayer. If anyone desires that kind of life, keep your lips from evil. This is the good life that Peter is describing. For the eyes of the Lord, here's the reward for the man who keeps his tongue from speaking evil. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. That's what Peter is describing as the, the love of life here. His ears, God's ears will be open to their prayer. That's the goodness of the life. That's the abundant life. That's the flourishing life. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So if we desire to have a flourishing life, it must be in our mind, we must at least mean, in our hearts, I want a God-centered, oh, his, his eyes upon me, his mission, his word in my mouth, him as my treasure. That's what we must mean when we say we want a good life, an abundant life, a flourishing life here on earth. It's him. That's what Jesus is not referring to when he talks about this man who loves his life. To clarify, that man in Luke 9, as we continue in verse 25, is a man who's continuing to live for himself and therefore displays a lack of belief and trust in Christ. We must be careful here that this doesn't excuse us. Is the enjoyment of your life due to the enjoyment of your God? Is the enjoyment of your life due to the joy of being on mission for him and being God-centered? That line whether or not we are joyful because we have God or joyful because of our own life, makes or breaks eternities. This man here in this description, as Jesus asks this question, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? It's not a God-centered gaining of the world. He here is talking about instead one who loves the world. We are called to rejoice in the Lord, as Philippians 4 tells us. But Jesus' description of this Man here displays an actual love for the world more than a love for Jesus. He says in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God, he abides forever. Jesus starts with this man in Luke 9 regarding his desire to avoid following Jesus into suffering. That's the saving of the life that he's referring to. That's the gaining of the world that he's referring to. Not denying the inherently selfish desire to save one's life by denying self, taking up a cross, following him, losing his life in order to have Jesus. This is even clarified later that he's talking about avoidance of suffering because we're going to come to this next week. Don't miss next week as it's dealing with how the ashamedness of, of have, being ashamed to have Jesus in order to avoid the suffering that comes along with knowing Jesus, especially in evangelism, could end in the result of you going to hell because it may display a lack of saving faith. But even there, we see the context is avoidance of suffering. So our next verse keeps with that same theme because avoiding of suffering as a superior desire than a faithfulness to Jesus. Avoidance of suffering is in view here. But the motives can vary and they're all equally damning. And this is what he's saying. If you love 
the world and you choose the world. Matthew chapter six, Jesus again refers to the love for the world. No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying here, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world in this way? On the contrary, the one who has true saving faith is the one who holds Jesus as superior and therefore follows him. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The display of a love for Jesus is a following Jesus. We see it again, 1 John 5, 3 through 5. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is that that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And so we see the essence of saving faith, loving him supremely, therefore following him, and thereby overcoming the world and its temptations. This is characterized by faith, not man-centered victory. At this verse is taken out of context often. What we see is that it refers to a victory of overcoming the world, which is faith in Jesus as superior, as the Son of God. This only comes to one who has the kind of faith, the one who believes that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. So back to verse 25 in our passage. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? That's what we just discussed. And loses or forfeits his soul. Finally, he says, loses or forfeits, gives up loses, connotes, it is taken from him, or he has lost control of its outcome, or mistakenly is careless with it. He didn't weigh the options intentionally enough, which is ironic because he was trying to control it in the first place. And forfeits, so he uses loses or forfeits here, connotes a choice, gives it up willingly, Himself. Now, here, himself is used, and in other accounts, his soul is used. One example is Matthew chapter 16. And then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man, here it is, if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? It's the same thing. And true self is the soul. The true self is the soul. Our soul is made by God in the likeness of God. So Jesus is saying the same thing here and in those other passages. It is made for God. Our soul is made by God in the likeness of God and is made for God. Our souls are eternal beings. But our souls are only eternal one way, by the way. We had a start date. And yet we will go on for eternity. God is eternal both ways. He always existed and he always will exist. He's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. God is eternal. That is one of his attributes. Psalm 92, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From everlasting to everlasting, you are our God. Genesis 1.1, it's the greatest supposition to have ever existed and will ever exist. In the beginning, God. Wait a second, how'd he get there? Well, he was there. He was always there, always. 
So our souls, though, are eternal beings, but they are only eternal one way. But we will inherit eternal life or we will go on for eternity by going to eternal death. We are eternal beings. Verse 25, he will lose or forfeit himself or his soul. Jesus says, says both here because he says himself here and soul in another place. And we have at least two distinctions that can be seen in the Bible about what makes us up, our flesh and our soul. Psalm 63, one, O God, my God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. So we see a distinction here between soul and flesh, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. In our passage, Jesus is not referring to the flesh, although we will all lose that. I tell you, uh, verse 1 Corinthians 15, 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable perishable inherit the imperishable. The dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Second Corinthians 5, 8, we would rather be away from the body and be at home with the Lord. And even now our flesh is decaying. Second Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, we do not lose heart there, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not only, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Jesus here is referring to the soul not the flesh, although we will lose the flesh as well. He's saying your eternal soul, you will lose or forfeit. This man will lose or forfeit his eternal soul. What does it profit a man to lose his soul? And so let me mention one more thing, and then we're gonna tie this all together and be done. Matthew's account adds something here. Look at it. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, Take up his cross and follow me. Forever would save his life, will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Here's our verse. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And he adds this. Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? In saying this, Jesus is saying, what price could you pay? What gain could you get? What cost could you pay for your soul? There is none. It's eternally priceless. So to close up, Here's what Jesus is saying. If you save your life, you will lose it. And consider this. It's a question now that we just covered in verse 25. Consider this. What would it profit a man to gain this whole world or save it, as he said in verse 24, and lose or forfeit himself or his soul and lose it, as he just said in verse 24. Consider it. The one who saves his life will lose it. And what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? It will not profit you anything. That's Jesus' point. Don't aim to save this life and instead lose it for all of eternity. There's no gain in that. Friends, you must think eternally. We must think about what really matters. We must let it drive us to give up this life now. We must let it cause us to endure 
even when it's hard to follow Jesus. Thinking eternally about what really matters, that's what will drive us to follow and continue to follow Jesus. If you have followed Jesus, you are thinking eternally. You are saying eternal life, my eternity is more important than the here and now, which is you gaining eternal life with Christ for your eternal joy and his eternal glory is greater than what you could have temporarily here on earth. Let that eternal thinking cause you moment by moment to choose Jesus. If you are not thinking eternally, then you will, of course, forfeit Jesus now to have a greater earthly life, to avoid suffering. But that's folly because eternity is forever. And your life here on earth is temporary. But that's what people think when they decide not to follow Jesus, that this life is more valuable than their eternity. Let this eternal perspective cause you to follow Jesus because eternity is at stake. And that matters infinitely more. But seen as less, give up your life, pursue him, trust in his gospel, cling tightly to it, share it. Eternity's on the line. Think about your eternal life. Having this eternal perspective is what should cause you to choose to follow Jesus. It's worth it. Jesus is reasoning with us here. He's saying, if you save your life, you're going to lose it, but what does it profit a man to gain it and lose his eternal life? Think eternally. Think with the perspective of eternally. And let that cause you in, to endure. Eternity is what matters. Live for that and endure for that. Having that as your perspective. Eternity is what I got to get. That's more important. And if you choose the world, you will forfeit your soul. And this displays a lack of saving faith in the person necessity of the work of Jesus. And so think eternally, trust in Jesus and live for him so that you may be with him for all of eternity. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we ask that you would just drive these details home in any way you choose and that you would cause us to choose eternity over the temporary, that we would see it does us no gain, no good, no profit, to have this world and yet forfeit our entire eternity. There's no gain in that. Help us to see that. And therefore, let it cause us to live for you, to choose to follow you, to deny ourselves, to die, to in, endure suffering for your namesake, knowing that eternity is far more valuable. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.